0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: It's Sunday, July 7th. I'm Margaret Brennan and this is Face the Nation. Dangerous overcrowding and unsanitary conditions at the border. That's how a new government report describes facilities used to detain migrants. But on Friday, the president dismissed it. I've seen some of those
2: places, and they are run beautifully.
1: They're clean, they're good. And renewed his vow to start mass deportation raids fairly soon. Well, I don't call
3: them raids. I say they came in illegally, and we're bringing them out legally.
1: Our guests, acting director of Citizenship and Immigration Services, Ken Cuccinelli, and Delaware Democrat, Senator Chris Coons. Plus, Joe Biden apologizes. Now, was
3: I wrong a few weeks ago? But yes, I was.
1: Telling voters he regrets recent comments about past work with segregationist senators.
3: I'm sorry for any of the pain or misconception they may have caused
4: anybody.
1: That after post-debate polls showed the former vice president losing support while California Senator Kamala Harris gained ground. Join me as we write what is wrong. We'll talk with one candidate hoping to beat them both, former Maryland Congressman John Delaney. All that and political analysis of the week, up next on Face the Nation. Good morning. Welcome to Face the Nation. We begin today with the acting director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, Ken Cuccinelli. His agency is part of Homeland Security and it manages the processing of applications for refugees, those claiming asylum or seeking citizenship. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. President Trump said he was going to delay the roundup of migrants for two weeks until Congress overhauled asylum laws. It's been two weeks. This has not happened. So what is the administration going to do?
5: Well, essentially, at this point, it's been put in Matt Albins's hand, the acting director at ICE. He's a career ICE officer, came up through the ranks, and they're ready to just perform their mission, which is to go and uh, I find and, uh, and detain and then deport the approximately one million people who have final removal orders. They've been all the way through the due process um, and have final removal orders who among those will be targeted for this particular uh, effort or or not is really just information kept within ICE at this point.
1: So there had been reports that this would be just in the thousands. You're saying the roundups will be far larger scale.
5: No, no, I'm just pointing out that the pool of those with final removal orders is enormous. And, um, you know, it's, it's important to note, here we are talking about ICE doing its job as if it's special. And really, this should be going on on a rolling basis for ICE. And they've been interfered with effectively um, and held up by the politics of Washington uh, to a certain extent. And they're looking forward to just getting back to doing their job.
1: So Congress hasn't changed asylum laws. They have not touched it. Do you expect anything?
5: You know, I just saw the House calendar put out, I think, by the Speaker's office and um, was disappointed to see nothing on that calendar to address this subject before they all go on vacation in August, so, and there are Can you some act relatively- Congress? Well, there are things we're doing, there are regulatory changes, but they take a long time and they're not the equivalent of a legal change by Congress. We really need Congress, for instance, to fix the trafficking loophole that allows children from uh, the Northern Triangle, for instance, and other countries around the world, to uh, not be repatriated quickly and return to their families, we need help with the Flores fix, the Flores settlement. That even the Obama administration fought the judge in that case in 2015. This a 20-day it. limit on being able. Well, to right, change. but it was for almost 20 years. It was understood that that was to deal with unaccompanied children. The judge in 2015 opposed by the Obama administration. Um, expanded that to families, and that has tied our facilities up in knots. It's made it very difficult to manage that population, to keep the families together in detention while they go through the due process. I
1: understand you're new to the job, but you were just pointing out the Democratic-controlled House hasn't acted on asylum laws. Why didn't the Trump administration do anything on this when Republicans were in control of two houses? Why didn't President Trump and Leader McConnell do it?
5: Yeah, I think the effort was being made, and Congress wasn't responsive.
1: Leader McConnell wasn't able to get this done?
5: And right now you see the only effort arising out of uh, Senator Graham working with Senator Durbin is the discussion I Mm -hmm. observe. I see it from the same perspective you do, Um, meaning outside, uh, to try to work on asylum loophole fixes. Uh, That's the only place we see any effort going on right now.
1: Tell me about some of the regulatory changes you think you can make without congressional approval.
5: Right. Well, there are some coming over the next few months, like public charge rule. Um, We're looking at what we can do in the Flores environment um, without short of legislation uh, to ease the pressure on our agencies. And I mean, the three immigration agencies are my agency, USCIS, which handles asylum and Mm -hmm. and refugees, as you noted. Uh, And, of course, ICE, detention and removal and interior enforcement. And then the Border Patrol, uh, CBP doing what their name describes as border protection. So all working together. And um, we also have uh, some adjustments in the asylum space, coming we hope they're working on but part of what we have to analyze is does congress have to do this and and how much can we do so those are things that i'm just diving in here in my first month as to determine how far we can go without congress because until they're willing to act um, we're not going to see a significant change.
1: And you are not, you have not been formally nominated and appointed by the president. Correct. And Congress has not confirmed you. Correct. To My this job. So how much principal, authority,
5: deputy, and I serve as acting director.
1: How much authority do you think you have to make these changes? I mean, it seems like, and critics will certainly say, you continue to try to bypass Congress to make changes in a way that is not how their oversight role is supposed to be. Well, function.
5: look, I mean, you're hearing from me, you'll hear from the uh, acting secretary, you've heard from the president We want to see Congress act. It's a congressional solution that's going to be required for long-term, lasting change that doesn't get tied up in courts in the way that every regulation does.
1: Well, on those regulatory changes, can you change the definition of who is allowed to immigrate and claim asylum? And how do you do that in a way that doesn't keep people who are legitimately fleeing violence and persecution from seeking safe haven? Yeah, and
5: it's important for people to realize that... um, we continue to effectuate an asylum process that is intended to help people who are persecuted for political, religious, et cetera reasons. But that whole process is being swamped by fraudulent asylum claims and from our The administration our
1: tried and failed to change that, though, had tried to block those fleeing domestic That's violence, right. had tried to block those fleeing gang violence, and the courts said no.
5: So, Uh, well, the courts, the the president has taken attempted to undertake several actions, including cutting off asylum between ports of entry. Uh, For instance, last November, that was enjoined by courts. That's being litigated. Um, the the level of judicial activism to stop this administration is historically unprecedented. We've never seen anything like it before.
1: I want to get on to the border detention facilities. You don't have oversight of those in your current role. But this IG report that came out this week just confirmed what we have been hearing from Homeland Security since back in March about the horrific conditions in many of these facilities, overcrowding thousands more detainees in by being right. held for longer, including children, than they should have been. Right. So you now have billions of dollars from Congress. When does this change?
5: Well, it's already changed. Most of the money in the supplemental, which is what I assume you're referencing, went to address children uh, in this process. And in fact, in over the course of the last month since that supplemental, we've gone from about 2,500 children um, in facilities not designed for them down to a fraction of that.
1: So those images that we saw this week, that a government investigator released, right, is that still happening at U.S. facilities?
5: Uh, that is that not happening with respect to children in particular. We do have overcrowding in some places, um, but that's a matter of the rush at the border and what the what our system has been designed to absorb. And while the same people come down to the border from Congress and complain about it, they don't actually go back to Washington and do anything to fix it.
1: And lastly, on the census, there, there seems to be consensus that you do need to know the number of people in the country. But when it comes <laughs> to the, the question of citizenship, which is where we've seen this back and forth with the Supreme Court saying right. the administration can't move forward with its legal justification at this time, the president says he still wants to. Uh, the, the concern here is that it could also cause, by including it, a skewing of the results, inaccurate figures.
5: Well, it's been by collected, it's been collected many, many times in the past, and that concern is not including has never this arisen.
1: question since the uh, it 50s has or been
5: 60s. 1950s, it's been included, and it's also been included in the more detailed example. Uh, I don't know what, this, what the Commerce Department calls it, that's, That is, it doesn't count every single. But immigration entity. officials
1: like yourself will not see, ultimately. The details of this census information. Answers terms of, of any person status? are not
5: tied. It's aggregated data. Mm-hmm. So that's correct. I'm so concerned
1: that this is being used for political purposes, is why I'm asking you that question.
5: Right. Well, the, the census is intended to gather an awful lot of information the way it's used now. Uh, however, if your question is, Will my agency or other agencies see a person who says, no, I'm not a citizen and their name and address and so forth? That's taken on an aggregated basis. That's not individualized data that comes to us. So, no. Correct.
1: Thank you very much. Good to be with you. We turn now to Democrat Chris Coons, who is part of a bipartisan group of senators who continue to work on immigration reform. He joins us from Wilmington, Delaware. Welcome, Senator. You just heard from uh, Mr. Cuccinelli uh, that the administration is going to try to change asylum or the ability to claim asylum because Congress isn't doing anything. Uh, Is there going to be any proposal put forward by Congress
6: Well, Margaret, the challenge that those of us in Congress who want to make progress on addressing our broken immigration system have faced is the ways in which President Trump initially embraces and then abruptly reverses himself and opposes those bipartisan proposals that have been brought to him. Uh, Ken Cuccinelli just referenced correctly that Senators Graham and Durbin, a seasoned Republican and Democrat, have tried repeatedly to get a proposal moving uh, that could win both bipartisan support in the Senate and ultimately be embraced by President Trump. Um, Several times, many of us who have worked across the aisle on this issue have been deeply frustrated by the ways in which President Trump, after initially saying he would welcome a proposal, um, gets criticized for it for a day or two by the right wing and then reverses himself and campaigns against it or threatens to veto it. So, frankly, I don't see how we're going to make progress unless President Trump is willing to take a fixed point and say, I will accept these changes And frankly, Margaret, the ways in which Ken just referred to loopholes – as things that are legal protections for children and their parents in detention, um, I think misreads the core issue. These aren't loopholes. These are core features of American law that protect children in American custody.
1: So specifically on the things that Cuccinelli referenced, that that was about uh, being able to, the the time, uh, duration which children and their family members can be held, and about trafficking. Uh, What part of that, since you've worked on trafficking, do you think was false?
6: Well, my concern here is that uh, we've got an administration that has intentionally used cruelty to children as a tool of immigration policy. I'll remind you um, that their zero tolerance policy that forcibly separated children from their parents at the border a year ago was a humanitarian disaster Mm -hmm. and faced a bipartisan outcry of both Republicans and Democrats. So they don't have a lot of moral authority to stand on in arguing that they'd like Congress to give them an unlimited ability to detain children, uh, and their parents at the border. The bipartisan bill that just made it out of Congress to provide funding increases the number of immigration judges and increases support for more humane conditions at the border. That's the right direction for us to go.
1: But you just referenced uh, the border conditions Uh, in that I.G. report, the inspector general report that came out this week. People seem to be horrified, perhaps rightfully so, at some of the images. But these were things that the administration had been warning about going back um, as far back as March during congressional hearings, Why hasn't there been more swift action uh, to try to improve the conditions for people being held in U.S. detention? And don't Democrats deserve some uh, criticism on that front?
6: Uh, Well, Margaret, um, we have been trying on a bipartisan basis um, to avoid this um, inevitable humanitarian catastrophe at the border. Um, but I'll remind you, it was a lawyer representing this administration who, who argued in court just two weeks ago that safe and sanitary conditions for children doesn't include a requirement that they provide soap or toothpaste or toothbrushes or beds. Um, there are ways in which the administration has demonstrably failed in its moral responsibility uh, to provide minimally reasonable care for children in their custody. I think all of us as parents, as Americans, were horrified uh, by the picture of Oscar Ramirez Martinez and his daughter Valeria, uh, who drowned trying to cross the Rio Grande. Um, we have to find a bipartisan solution to this, Margaret. And as a Democrat, I have voted repeatedly mm-hmm. for bills that would dramatically increase investment in border security and make humane changes to our immigration system. The president just needs to be clear about what he's willing to embrace. And it has to get a majority of his own party. His proposal right. last February was the only one that got 60 no votes, even in a Republican majority Senate.
1: Uh, more to talk about immigration. There always is. But I have to ask you about uh, your friend um, who you are supporting, the former vice president, Joe Biden. Uh, after more than you know, three weeks since he first made the comments, uh, Biden apologized yesterday for his remark on past work with segregationists. Listen.
3: Folks. Now, was I wrong a few weeks ago? To somehow give the impression to people that I was praising those men who I successfully opposed time and again. Yes, I was. I regret it. And I'm sorry for any of the pain or misconception they may have caused anybody.
1: Why did it take nearly three weeks to say those words? Why weren't they said on the debate stage or in prior interviews?
6: Well, Margaret, one of the challenges of the debate stage that we saw in Miami last week is that everybody's got 60 seconds to address very complex issues. Uh, I know Joe Biden. I know his heart. I know his record. And I think the American people. I'm sorry doesn't take very long.
1: I'm sorry. Saying I'm sorry doesn't take 30 seconds.
6: Well, I think it's important that he gave a speech in which he recognized that the ways in which he talked about working across the aisle in the context of the Senate of decades ago um, may have caused some concern or heartbreak. But the reality is his actual record, his lifelong record of standing up and fighting for civil rights is what he should be judged on.
1: Senator, always good to speak with you. We'll be back in one minute with 2020 Democratic presidential candidate John Delaney. Don't go away.
2: Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to a sleep number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven, quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number.
1: So 2020 Democratic presidential candidate and former Maryland congressman John Delaney, he's been seeking his party's nomination now for almost two years. You have been on that trail. I think you declared just six months after President Trump uh, was inaugurated. Why do you want to be president?
7: Well, I think the central issue facing this country is how terribly divided we are and how our government doesn't work anymore, meaning we don't get anything done. And I'm running for president to get America working again so that we can actually fix health care, build infrastructure, improve public education, make sure there's jobs in every community in this country. Those are the reasons I'm running for president. And but to do any of those things, we actually have to start coming together. We have to find common ground. We can't act like bipartisan solutions or dirty words that we can't say in Washington anymore.
1: Uh, I think a lot of people would agree with that in principle, but no, in practice, it's a lot harder to get things done, particularly on issues like immigration. Uh, So what would you do uh, to... Questions here. Would you decriminalize border crossing? And and what would you do with the thousands of migrants who are currently in U.S. custody?
7: So I wouldn't decriminalize border crossings, but I would make it illegal to separate children from their families. What I would do as president is the two things that we have to focus on.
1: Would you change the floor's agreement in terms of the limitation on the amount of time children can be held?
7: Yes, I would. I mean, we have to. You would allow them to be detained for longer. No, no, I I want I don't want children to be detained long at all. I, I want to go the other way. We have to treat people who cross our borders with a measure of dignity, right? That has to be reflective of our values. But we should not lose sight of the two things that we have to focus on. We need comprehensive immigration reform. It should have passed in 2013. I think with the right president focusing on this in the first hundred days of an administration, we can get it done. But the other thing we need to do, Margaret, is we need to fix what's going on in those Central American countries. My wife and I, we were down at the border at the beginning of the year. We took 14 law students and two law professors for a week and went into the largest detention facility in this country. And and what we're doing, we're helping asylum seekers make their case. And when you listen to the stories from these people, you realize that everyone is leaving for the right reason. They feel threatened. Their children are threatened. And unless we do things to rebuild civil society in the three Central American countries, we're going to continue to have this refugee crisis. So I've called for something called Plan Central America, which is very similar to something called Plan Columbia that we did a few decades ago, Mm -hmm. where we actually get all the relevant countries around the table, NGOs that can operate in these countries, and we fix the problem because we actually have to focus on that or we will continue to see a migration Kind of refugee crisis at our southern border.
1: What would you do with the migrants already in U.S. custody? The overcrowding that we are seeing.
7: Well, we're putting more money there, right? Based on the bill that passed this week, which I totally agree with. We need to make our asylum laws more efficient in terms of how these things are processed. We need more asylum judges. We need so to enforce the our laws. Administration is arguing for right. I know. And, and, well, we do need those, right? And we need more facilities. I mean, we have a crisis at the southern border. It's caused by what's happening in those countries. We have to stabilize what's going on in those countries. We have to make sure we have sufficient capacity at the border to handle these individuals. They have to be kind of treated with a measure of dignity. We have to make sure children aren't separated from their parents. And we have to actually apply our laws. But we can't apply our laws unless we have the judges, et cetera, to do it. But this is an example of how broken Washington is, right? Because mm-hmm. there are solutions here. There are bipartisan compromises. We actually just saw one this past week, which I thought was a, a good step forward. We can fix this immigration system that we have in this country. It's broken. We can do things to stabilize what's going on in Central America. But then we can also get to work on the other issues that really matter to the American people, like fixing our health care system, right. lowering pharmaceutical prices, building infrastructure, doing things to improve public education make college more affordable, expanding, you know, pre-K to make it universal. We also and have to focus your, on these issues.
1: Healthcare is your signature issue, as, as I know. Um, and in the last debate, you said Medicare for all is not good policy and it's not good yes. politics. But more than eight of the candidates uh, of the 24 or 25 now support this. Are, are voters just being misled by your fellow Democratic <clears throat> candidates? Yeah, I think
7: they're wrong. I mean, look at <clears throat> so many of the candidates, Senator Warren, so many of these people have outsourced their health care plan to Bernie Sanders. Right. Because this is Bernie Sanders' plan. And it'll take private insurance away from more than half of the country. And they will reject that if we run on that. It'll it'll also reduce quality and access in our health care system because Medicare doesn't reimburse sufficiently to keep all the hospitals and providers on the
1: debate stage when you raise
7: this. So I understand that
1: it does seem popular, at least with people who vote in primary. But
7: here's the thing. Medicare for all is a great slogan. They've hijacked the good name of Medicare and applied it to a law that will cause upheaval in our health care system. And I, I was the first person to actually talk about this. Now we're seeing the debate change on this issue as people start to realize. My plan, which is called Better Care, is a universal health care plan. Every single American gets health care as a basic right of citizenship for free. But I preserve options if people want to opt out and keep their private insurance they can if they want to buy supplemental plans they can it's a much better way to create a universal health care system and non citizens Me- Non-citizens okay. are not covered by my Medicare plan, okay. but under my immigration reform, they will have legal status while they, while they wait on a path to citizenship, which would allow them to then be covered. So if, wanted- you, if you take immigration and health care together, you kind of see how we can start solving I the problems.
1: I want to very quickly ask you um, on foreign policy. You criticized the Obama-era nuclear deal. Um, Iran has said it is now going to break through yet another limit that was set by that deal on their nuclear program. What would you do as commander
7: in chief? Well, I actually voted for the deal. Mm-hmm. I thought it was imperfect, but I thought it was the right way forward. I would want to get us back in a deal, but I think the deal can be better. Right? do I you think
1: you can get back in the deal? I, think, sorry, I, absolutely think I, can get, I
7: absolutely think I can get back in the deal, Even and I absolutely can make it better. In 2020 and 2020. That's the problem you've got to fix. I think I can get us back in the deal. And extend those sunset clauses. I mean, foreign policy really needs to be di- discussed more in this presidential debate. Things like trade. I was one of the few Democrats to support President Obama with his trans-Pacific partnership. I don't think you can run against President Trump unless you supported the trans-Pacific partnership, okay. because rejecting that deal is effectively Trumpian view of the world.
1: Uh, and uh, we're going to have to leave it there because I have to take a quick break. Thank you very much. Thank for you, Margaret. on Face the Nation. We'll be back in a moment.
0: Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look,
4: those forgotten home
0: movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order.
6: That's LegacyBox.com. Slash /save for 40% off. legacybox.com/save.
1: Welcome back to Face the Nation. It's time now for some political analysis from our panel. Susan Page is the Washington Bureau Chief of USA today. David Nakamura covers the White House for the Washington Post. Michael Gerson is also at The Washington Post as a nationally syndicated columnist. And Jamel Bowie is a columnist for The New York Times and a CBS News political analyst. Uh, welcome. Happy delayed Fourth of July. Thank you. Um You know, there was a lot that continued to happen despite the holiday, particularly on the campaign trail. One of them, of course, being what Joe Biden said yesterday. Uh, and Susan, I want to start with you on that. You heard Senator Chris Coons, who is a surrogate for the vice president, um, say that, you know, the delay wasn't an issue. That taking three weeks to issue this apology is something that, you know, was just a matter of timing and nothing significant. Uh, can the vice president brush this off?
8: Uh, you know, I think it's it's good for his campaign that he did some cleanup on that. But it is of alarming. It's alarming, I think, to his supporters that it took nearly three weeks for him to do that. And you really you really uh, you got a laugh out of Senator Pence when you noted that it wouldn't have taken very long to say I made a mistake or I'm sorry uh, during the debate itself. So, uh, you know, it's going to be a long campaign. People are going to have missteps and and recoveries. Maybe that is just what this is with Senator Biden, but uh, with Vice President Biden. But it certainly underscores some of the difficulties he has, which is his long history in American politics. Questions about positions that he's taken in the past out of step with today's Democratic Party and his nimbleness in trying to respond to them. Jamal, did he need to do this?
4: I think he did it. And I think the question of his nimbleness is a big one. Biden's campaign is premised on the idea that he is the most electable, that he is the most ready to take on Trump. And so when you stumble like that in a debate and then take three weeks to actually issue an apology and really respond to the concerns, the signal of that sense is that the core issue of your campaign, the core claim of your campaign, that you are most prepared to run in a general election is undermined. And I think other candidates will have their missteps and stumbles. But for Biden in particular, he has to his missteps can't be like this.
1: Was it a, a nimbleness issue? Or, I mean, the vice president initially had said he there wasn't anything to apologize for. So it seemed to change in his own understanding yeah, of what I think it does happened.
3: highlight that he's an institutionalist. This is the way that the Senate works. The Senate is his home, you know, his emotional home. It was actually the people that took him in when he had tragedy in his own family. You look at his history. Um, And I think Nancy Pelosi is an institutionalist, too. She wants institutions to work. But, you know, can you elect an institutionalist in a time of ideology? Um, That's what rules in both our parties right now. And I, I think it could present a problem for Biden. That's what he really believes.
9: And that's true. I mean, you know, if, if anything, what was the lesson of the eight years of President Obama? I mean, President Obama came in saying he was going to galvanize the country and lead to this idea that they can cross over partisan lines and sort of get above this sort of day-to-day fray. If anything, of course, we saw uh, Obama and his administration face more obstruction uh, and outright sort of, uh, you know, declaration from Mitch McConnell that he was going to try to stop Obama's agenda at all costs. If, if Biden does not seem to have learned that lesson, that that was the lesson of uh, the Obama years. If anything, Washington has gotten more uh, partisan since then. So Biden sort of uh, hearkening back to his time 30 years ago uh, and crossing over is not a message, I think, that uh, ordinary voters, even on the Democratic side, they might want to hear it, but I don't think it it strikes uh, the core of reality.
1: Michael, you know, the former vice president has sort of recoiled from some of the activists in his party and presented himself as someone who's able to find compromise or moderate. Is that enough to attract some disaffected Republicans. I know you've been vocal about your criticism of the president, um, this particular president. But is it enough to win over Republicans?
3: Yeah, it's it's possible. Um, I think that there are a group of Trump voters who voted for Obama, for example, um, who might well be open to a different kind of Democrat. And. I do think it's a a requirement that whoever the Democratic nominee is, that they can go to Philadelphia and go to a fire station and talk to people. Um, That's, I think, a requirement in this case. Um, So I think that Biden does have a case to make. But so far, he's just defending himself and Mm -hmm. explaining himself um, rather than making a a real positive case for his electability.
8: And yet he got good news today in the Washington Post-ABC poll. He's the only one of the Democratic candidates in five or six matchups who decisively defeated Donald Trump. And what Democrats worry about is the idea that President Trump has a winnable race ahead of him, that it is entirely possible with an economy that is as strong as this economy has proved to be that President Trump could win a second term, despite the fact that most Americans, two thirds of Americans, say he doesn't act in a presidential way, have problems with the way he behaves.
1: And David, that Washington Post poll that uh, Susan just referenced, it shows President Trump's approval rating at its highest level. Uh, among registered voters since he took office?
9: Well, you've seen good news on the economy. It continue to be something the president uh, is going to um, continue to boast about. And uh, and the president is also coming off a time where he's certainly seemed to be doing things. And whether that, some of those are controversial. But uh, I was on the trip, of course, to Japan, where uh, the president was right in the mix with a number of foreign leaders. And, of course, uh, a, a big sort of showy uh, meeting with Kim Jong-un on, at the DMZ, uh, a lot of experts say that's something that, that it's not going to maybe make any breakthrough on the question of the nuclear uh, question with North Korea. But it's certainly something that the president seems to be uh, demonstrating that his resolve and sort of showing that he's, you know, uh, on, on the world stage, I think, um, certainly can can lead to him looking more presidential in that regard.
1: Jim, somebody else who's had a good week or past few or. Senator Kamala Harris. Right. Uh, those latest polls that have come out post debate show that Joe Biden's loss of a few points, though he's still a front runner, seem to be her gain. Right. Uh, is there more she can follow through to this uh, next round of debates, or are, are the targets going to be set on her?
4: I mean, I think her her clear current strategy with regards to Biden is basically to puncture the 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 aura of electability seems to have, the sense that he is the most capable to take on Trump. And I think if she continues Continues to do that, she may continue to pull from Biden. If you look at the the Democratic race, there's a very obvious top tier. It's it's uh, Biden, it's Sanders, it's Warren, it's Harris, it's Buttigieg, it's maybe it's Booker and Castro as well. And in the same way that Warren and Sanders are kind of competing for the same group of voters, Biden and Harris are too. And so as long as Harris can kind of demonstrate to voters on these debate stages where she she did quite well in this first debate that she Um, is sharp and can rattle the other candidates and seems ready to take on Trump, I think she'll do quite well um, going forward. I do think that Harris has an interesting challenge. She has to attack uh, Biden from the left,
3: but also then occupy the center left, because I think that's her place, her winning position in the party. Um, And that, I think, is a difficult challenge for her.
1: I'm going to take a quick break, but there's more to talk to you about about patriotism in this country Uh, the celebrations we saw this week and much more on the international front so we will be right back
10: i used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same well not anymore because i found noom noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits so it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind and change for good with Noom.
1: And we're back now with more analysis from our political panel. Um, This was the week of 4th of July, quite the celebration that we saw here in Washington. Um, And it, it brings me, Michael, to... The results of this poll that we saw out um, from Gallup this week on the question of how confident and proud Americans are feeling these days. And the number of Democrats polled said they were extremely proud, but it was at the lowest level ever recorded, just 22 percent. Republicans, for the most part, have remained extremely proud over the past 20 years uh, generally. But you saw this real feeling of malaise um, or a lack of patriotism. I mean, what is going on in terms of faith in the democratic system?
3: Well, I think that uh, the president has staked out extreme nationalism as his trademark. Um, and I think that there is a revolt against that in a highly polarized environment. Um, I think that people view that uh, extreme nationalism as Trump's territory, um, I, particularly on the left. Um, And I think the president is trying to do something in his definition of the American experiment that is quite uh, disturbing. I mean, he wants to define America as a place that is undermined by diversity, that is adulterated by new members coming. Um, And that, I think, is is causing a backlash in this country.
1: But when that poll had some different results when you broke it down by parts of the American institution and democracy in terms of pride felt um, and on this question of immigration and nationalism, Jamal. You know, there's an interesting Washington Post editorial by the former Obama administration Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson, um, who said basically there needs to be more straight talk on things like immigration and among Democrats. Uh, he hit at some Democratic candidates. He didn't name them, um, but said basically saying decriminalizing, crossing the borders or not deporting people who continue to flout American law uh, when they're here. Uh, is basically, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, amounting an open border policy that's just not realistic right. or enforceable. So you are seeing some sort of friendly fire with among Democrats disagreeing about how to carry out these policies right now. Uh, is there not enough straight talk, as he says?
4: See, I, I see the willingness to put forth more lenient border policies as being a kind of straight talk. It's being open, at least among some candidates, about what they really want to see in the country. And I think that what what is happening and what I'm not sure democratic internal Democratic Party politics knows how to respond to is liberals, left-wingers, concerned moderates looking at what's happening at the border right now with child detention, with family separation, with the border crisis, and deciding that the the kinds of policies that we have in place now have a long provenance, it's not just Trump. They, they stem back decades and wanting to decisively repudiate that and looking for ways to decisively repudiate that with both rhetoric and policy. And so something like um uh, Julian Castro's uh, proposal to decriminalize border crossings is very much, I think, a reflection of what he sincerely wants, a response to conditions, an attempt to build a new paradigm for how we think about immigration. Whether that's politically wise or popular, I don't know. But there does seem to be a kind of um, – I, I, I'm not sure I call it moral awakening, but the sort of moral fervor among um, the American left and liberals about what to do about immigration, about how to – affirm this as a diverse country, but how to affirm a kind of civic uh, cosmopolitanism that Trump is rejecting.
1: Well so. what you hear from Johnson in this off-ed, Susan, though, is, is him saying that this basically is going to uh, exacerbate the problem because you're going to have even more of an influx of uh, people coming
8: across the southern border. So I understand the moral debate and the practical effect, but let's talk about the political one, which is a big gift to President Trump, because for one thing, it allows him to portray Democrats as supporting open borders. It get, enables him to change the conversation from the horrific conditions that we see, uh, w- that children being held in uh, at some of these border crossing detention facilities. And what we see, I think, with Jay Johnson's interesting op-ed this morning is moderates are s- not exactly moderate centrists, center lefters pushing back against The most progressive elements of the Democratic Party on immigration in the in the question of Julian Castro's proposal, also on the issue of health care, where we're seeing more pushback on the idea of Medicare for all, which amounts to abandoning the Affordable Care Act, something that Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, to name two. Very much want to support I mean, you saw the Obama
9: administration really struggle with the same issue at the border, honestly. And mm-hmm. we remember the images from 2014 when we had the initial border crisis of unaccompanied children. There were crowded jail cells. The Border Patrol was buying uh, baby formula and, and video games to try to entertain uh, the kids in these overcrowded uh, conditions. Um, we also saw the administration and Jay Johnson himself talked about in the op-ed make some sort of effort to give this holistic response and sort of address uh, the, the, the dynamics in Central America. But what we saw from 2014 was a slight dip in 2015, and the numbers went back up to the highest levels in Obama's final year. They had not solved the problem, and Obama took a lot of heat for not pursuing more liberal policies on immigration. Uh, he was called deporter-in-chief, and Jay Johnson uh, and the president uh, were, were frustrated uh, by criticism from the left. And so uh, Jay Johnson is, is sort of referring to his time there. But it was uh, it was certainly a challenge for his administration as well.
3: But also we're seeing right now that there are people, high level people at the White House who think that the next step should be a new show of cruelty. Um, Going after immigrant families all over the country, up to a million. Who knows what the actual number will be? Um, The president has undermined that in the past through his tweets. But I think they're preparing to take some action.
1: Um, I also want to ask about Maureen Dowd's column, Susan, um, with this interview that she had with Speaker Pelosi, in which the speaker made clear that she was frustrated uh, that at least four Democrats did not vote to provide this border supplemental funding to help alleviate some of the conditions um, that they had wanted to see more restrictions put on the money. This was a almost a Twitter fight, I think, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the speaker that resulted.
8: Without naming names, right? Exactly. Because uh, Nancy Pelosi didn't name AOC, but said uh, these people with their, uh, with their public whatever and Twitter following. AOC responded with a tweet that did not name Nancy Pelosi, but was a response to it, a retweet of a tweet that did refer to her, saying, we call that public sentiment. And in a separate tweet, she said that They shouldn't be campaigning as though it's 2008. So this is, uh, you know, there's long been since the election, since the midterm election, there's been uh, tension between the most progressive elements of the House Democrats and Nancy Pelosi trying to hold everyone together. But this was definitely, I thought, a new stage and a new sign of concern among Democrats about whether they can hang together as some of these very difficult issues come up.
1: Michael, uh, final word here. Uh, We saw one. Uh, House Republicans say he doesn't want to be part of the party any longer. Uh, Justin Amash becoming an independent. Um, what do you make of that? Is it an well, existential it threat to the party or just a one-off? Well,
3: individual? libertarians tend to be very principled people. They're in politics for, for a reason. Um, and that, I think, is the case in this case. But I, I think the the party as a whole has really um, come under the president's influence uh, nearly totally.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks to all of you. Always good to have a conversation. We'll be back in a moment.
2: What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 World's Most Ethical Companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love, or visit www.pacificlife.com.
1: We're back now with Glenn Johnson, a political reporter turned Deputy Assistant Secretary of State who traveled the world with former Secretary of State John Kerry. His new book, Window Seat on the World, is a look at some of the historic moments he Witnessed. Glenn, good to have you here. Thank you for having me on, Margaret. I'm, I'm used to seeing you on the back of the plane when I was a reporter covering the secretary. Um, I, I want to ask you it, uh, as to why you felt it was important to write this book. You start off with a very personal story of a foreign service officer who was killed in Afghanistan. And you make the point that Americans kind of don't really understand what diplomats do.
11: Yeah, I just approached it from my own perspective. I was actually somebody that covered government for a number of years, almost 30 years, but I did not know that much about the State Department. And here it is, our first and oldest cabinet agency. It's the most forward-deployed element of our government. We have over 70,000 people working for the department, many of them here, but numerous people at 285 posts around the world And they represent our interests all throughout the globe. And so every time that I came back from one of these trips, I was always asked questions. that made me realize there was an interest in in, in learning more about this essential function of our government.
1: You say uh, unless people lost their passport, they often don't think about what the State Department actually does. Uh, And you had in your particular role— an extraordinary amount of access Mm -hmm. inside these meetings. And you took, I think, 100,000 photos, many Mm -hmm. of them that we have here, trying to set up a photo archive of what uh, the then secretary was seeing and doing. What do you think that helped to illuminate?
11: Well, several fold. I think the book, one of the things that that the book tries to do is just explain the fundamentals of diplomacy, Uh, what a bilateral meeting is like, what a multilateral meeting is like, the challenge of dealing with authoritarian regimes like the Chinese and the Russians, in particular, uh, and then some case studies of how to try and apply these diplomatic principles at things like the Middle East peace talks, the Iran nuclear talks, things that were in the past several years ago but still are very much at concern today. I mean, we see this with Iran and their increasing enrichment. We see this with the ongoing situation, the settlement building, and other work in in the Middle East, and the administration trying to improve the economy uh, between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And so I hope it's instructive that people will have a chance to see how one diplomat approached these issues and understand the context for them because they carry on today.
1: You mentioned Iran, and we were just showing some of those pictures there. Secretary Kerry was the, I think, American the only American official who had spent that much time mm-hmm. with an Iranian official in American history. Right. That deal, as we know, appears to be unraveling, and the Trump administration has pulled out of it. What was that like watching it? I know what it was like covering it, but mm-hmm. being on the inside and seeing what those teams were trying to do.
11: Yeah, a couple things. First of all, I knew John Kerry as a political reporter and sort of the uh, public caricature almost of him but to see him in those meetings the patience and the creativity and the sticktoodness that he displayed all the way through and then also as a driving force behind that he was herding cats all the time whether it was the P5 plus 1 nations these UN security council the world, council, powers. The world mm-hmm. powers uh you know the uh to trying to get the EU on board to then actually leading most of the technical and back fa- back and forth uh, negotiations with the Iranians. So he had multiple constituencies that he was trying to handle at one time. And so it gave me a real appreciation both for him as a diplomat in that way, but also for the challenge of creating something. That's why I think when you cast that aside, this was not the U.S. and Iran making a nuclear deal. This was the U.S. working with unanimously, all the members of the U.N. Security Council and the 28-member European Union, when's the last time they agreed on anything? And they all unanimously agreed to this. And now we've walked away from that. So that, that unraveling, I think, has come at some expense to our credibility and to you know, the future uh, stability of that area.
1: And, and you write a bit about uh, John Kerry, the man, mm. um, and sort of the personal journey that you saw him take, particularly when he went back as— America's top diplomat to Vietnam. Right. Um, Tell me about that, particularly, I think, a personal experience of him meeting a former Viet Cong. fighter.
11: Right. We made four trips there. And this was something that I always knew about is the myth of John Kerry. Kerry in Vietnam, almost synonymous, both good and bad. He was a soldier who then became an anti-war activist. But then we went back there and culminating in his final visit, went back up the river where he had his most famous battle while he was a soldier and where he engaged in this firefight that drew a lot of derision, uh, accusations of him being a war criminal, fuel for the swift boat, Veterans for Truth. And you know what? When we came back to the dock, there was a Viet Cong soldier there that told John Kerry that the person that he had killed was an actual combatant, was not a child, was not shot in the back. And and it put a lie to a lot of the myths that had been around him. And so to stand there and see this person give him this truth at this time was an amazing experience to witness. And I think, you know, put a nice close to a, 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 a life of public service that began when he was a Navy lieutenant and then finished all the way uh, as a secretary of state.
1: You were a journalist and then you worked with journalists in communication mm-hmm. when you were working for the secretary. When you see the loss of press access, um, the fewer press briefings that are carried out under this administration, what do you think the impact is?
11: I think it's a real loss, and especially for the administration itself. When you're a diplomat and you go into a diplomatic engagement, you have two constituencies. You're obviously dealing face-to-face with somebody and trying to negotiate on your best interest, but you're also trying to sell what you are doing and let the public know about what it is and why you're doing it. All the trips that we went on with the secretary, 109, one of my jobs was to help plan the events that we did for him while we were overseas. So it wasn't just so that he could see and learn and do things. Mm -hmm. It was so that people could understand what he was about and what was of interest to him.
1: Glenn, thank you so much. The book is Window Seat on the World. That's it for us. Thank you for watching. We want to congratulate the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team on making it to the World Cup final. Good luck this morning. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Acting Director of Citizenship and Immigration Services Ken Cuccinelli, Democratic Senator Chris Coons, and Democratic presidential candidate John Delaney. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington.